sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. I am your potter, Luke. I am your fodder, Luke. I am your dada, Luke. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and other cool stuff. This week, we're going to talk about Darth Vader and the names for dad, and about how we use the words better and best. But first, here's a listener question. Hi, Mignon. I'm listening to your May 9th episode. And in talking about hunting dogs, you said prowess. I was always taught prowess. So now I'm curious. Maybe I'm wrong. It's Liz in Stamford, Connecticut. Thanks, Liz. You are not wrong. All the U.S. dictionaries say the pronunciation is prowess with the emphasis on the first syllable. The Oxford English Dictionary lists the way I pronounce it, prowess, with the emphasis on the last syllable, as the third British pronunciation option. So it does seem like the way I've been pronouncing it is, if not out and out wrong, quite unusual. Thanks for the call. Movie legend has it that the identity of Luke Skywalker's father was hiding in plain sight. Well, at least through a subtle naming clue. Darth Vader does, after all, have a distinctly paternal ring to it linguistically. Indeed, had the big reveal been, I am your fodder, it would have made a nice play on the heavy breathing villain's name with a nod to an old Dutch term for father. The true origin story of Vader's moniker isn't as cool as the myth. Apparently, George Lucas gave him the name before he decided Vader would be Luke's father. But as someone who studies the origin of words, I see the story providing an example of something that is real, the universality of the names used for fathers across all languages. Considering that dads played a key part in populating the dawn of civilization, it's perhaps not surprising that a label for the dude we call dad would emerge early in the development of languages. But whether it's papa, dada, or vater— What is striking is the cross-cultural bias in the words used to describe him, and how the names have stuck around over millennia. Tracking the linguistic evolution of the modern word father, we find it as far back as written English goes, with references to fiadur or fadur or fader in Old English texts from the 7th to 11th centuries. In Old Dutch, there was fador, In Old Icelandic, we find fathir. In Old High German, a precursor to modern German, there was fater, now vater. And finally, in Old Danish, it's spelled F-A-T-H, 
ligatured a e r, which might be pronounced Phil. I'm not sure, but it looks a lot like father. This uniformity strongly suggests this word was found in the language's early Germanic parent. That is the source from which all these Germanic languages descended. But the similarity in terms used for father doesn't stop with this Germanic forefather. Related words are found across the entire Indo-European language tree, a large group of distinctly related languages that stretches over most of Europe and a good bit of Asia. For instance, we find closely matching terms in Latin with pater, Sanskrit's pitter, and in Greek with pater. All older languages that developed separately from the Germanic line. This means that the word "father" likely came from a long dead source language estimated to date back some six thousand years. This single parent language, known as Proto-Indo-European, spawned all these later languages and their shared word for potters. But how did the P in Potter morph into the F found in all the Germanic father words? Well, historical linguists have reconstructed the most likely sounds that were used in this hypothesized parent language, since ancient Greek, Latin, and Sanskrit all have p, t, and k sounds. Their Indo-European source also probably had these or closely related sounds. But as Germanic languages formed their own branch of the family tree, this p turned into an f. This explains why there is a p in Latin-based words like Pisces, pediatry, and patriarchy, but f in the Germanic-descended equivalents like fish, foot, and father. This sound change wasn't random, but followed what came to be called Grimm's law, named for the very same brother Grimm who brought us Hansel and Gretel. Grimm noted a pattern of sound correspondences across Indo-European languages that suggested a series of regular changes that must have occurred as Indo-Europeans split into daughter languages. These changes likely started out as dialect variants that became more distinct as groups of speakers were separated and new languages evolved with the shifted sounds. One might expect closely related languages to share words for fathers, but even across languages in which there's no known evidence of a common ancestry, the words for dad sound strikingly familiar. Languages as distinct as the Sino-Tibetan Chinese and Native American Washoe use Baba. In Nilo-Saharan Maasai, spoken in Kenya and Tanzania, it's Papa, and in the Semitic language Hebrew. Abba. A similar bent is found in English, where children use the more intimate Papa, Dad, or sometimes Daddy as an alternative to the more formal Father, especially when in trouble or getting bailed out of jail. This tendency towards similar vocabulary words suggests that something pretty universal must be driving it. And though at first D and P and B might not seem to be all that similar sounding. They are all part of a class of what are called stop consonants in linguistics. Stop consonants are sounds made with a short but complete obstruction of airflow through the mouth during their articulation. Now, why does this matter to pops everywhere? Well, because stop sounds, along with vowels, are the earliest and most frequent sounds babies tend to babble, which means pa, ta, ba, and da. 
are all early infant babbles. Also, repetition is a feature of both baby babble and what parents babble back. As a result, this specific babbling dent makes dadas, babas, and papas, along with appas and abas, very popular things for little Carlos or Kesha to say while hanging out in the crib. So when dad happens by and hears what he interprets as his call sign, a celebratory first word commemoration commences, regardless of whether Junior actually intended it that way or not. And this circles back to the origin story of the word father. Linguists theorize that at some early point in the development of the Indo-European language, the sound sequence pa, babbled in early speech and wishfully interpreted as referring to good old dad, was combined with a suffix such as ter, pa, ter, possibly denoting a kinship relationship. Looking at the evolution of language more generally, linguists can't say with certainty whether modern languages inherited the word from an undiscovered original early human language, like African, or if this process occurred several times over the course of language history. But what it does suggest is that dads have clearly been important enough throughout the history of humankind to merit special designation. And unlike so many other words that have been shifted and reshaped or replaced over time by inherent linguistic pressures and language contact, the fondness for dadas, dads, fathers, and papas seems to be unusually resistant to change. So whether you call him your papa, your baba, or your abba, just be sure to call him and let him know how well he and his title have stood the test of time. That segment was by Valerie Friedland. It originally appeared on The Conversation and appears here through a Creative Commons license. Valerie is the author of the book, Like Literally Dude, and you can find her at ValerieFriedland.com. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Hey, it's Mignon. Do you need a new literary show to add to your podcast queue? Well, then you definitely want to check out Missing Pages, the chart-topping and Signal Award-winning podcast produced by The Podglomerate. Back for a brand new season, Missing Pages investigates the most pressing topics in the book world today, from the rise of Colleen Hoover and book bans across America to the world of ghostwriting. Not to mention host and acclaimed literary critic Beth Ann Patrick interviews some of the biggest names in the industry, like New York Times bestselling author Jody Pico and Publishers Weekly co-editorial director Jim Milliot. And as The Washington Post and The Guardian said, Missing Pages is a, quote, must listen. And I agree. So don't miss out. Follow Missing Pages today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. 
You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries. So you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart, every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi. Last week, we talked about when to use more and most, or the suffixes er and est, to make comparisons using adjectives and adverbs. Well, this week, we'll go a little bit more in depth about comparisons. When you're comparing items, you need to notice if you're comparing two things or more than two things. When you compare two things, you're using what's called a comparative. So you use the word more before the adjective or the suffix er on the end of it. You can remember that comparatives are for two things because comparative has the sound pair in it, and a pair is always two things. It's not spelled like pair, but it sounds like pair. When you're comparing three or more items, you're using a superlative, so you use the word most or the suffix est. You can remember that superlatives are for more than two things because superlative has the word super in it. And when you want a whole bunch of something, you supersize it. So to think about it loosely, use a comparative when you have a pair of things and a superlative when you have a supersized group, at least more than two. Now, if you listened to the other show about comparisons, you know when you're supposed to use which one. But a quick refresher is that one-syllable adjectives use the suffixes, er or est on the end of the adjective. Adjectives with three or more syllables use more or most in front of the adjective. And adjectives with two syllables have different rules. Sometimes you use the suffix, other times you have to use more or most, and in some cases you can use either. You need to rely on your ear and your dictionary to figure it out. Now, here's how you'd use comparisons and superlatives. If you want to brag that you now have more knowledge about grammar than you used to, you're comparing now and then, which is two items. So you might say, I've been listening to Grammar Girl for a while, so my grammar is better than it used to be. The comparative is better. If, on the other hand, you're comparing yourself with your six cousins, you're comparing seven people, definitely more than two. So you might say, I am the best speller in the family. Here, the superlative is best. Now, a few errors crop up with comparisons. One common mistake is using a superlative form when you're comparing only two items. For example, it would be incorrect to say it was the tallest of the two buildings. You're comparing just two buildings, so you should use a comparative, taller, not a superlative, tallest. A quick and dirty tip to help you remember which suffix goes with which number of items is that ER has two letters, and it's for comparing two things. 
and EST has three letters, and it's for comparing three or more things. Sometimes, though, an error of this kind sounds more natural than the traditionally grammatically correct version. Take this sentence. Which House of Congress has the better attendance record? That technically correct sentence sounds odd to me. I'm not sure why, but I'd prefer to say best attendance record, even though there are only two houses of Congress. Maybe it's because best is becoming more common than better. Garner's Modern English Usage puts the use of best for better at stage four on his language change index, meaning it's ubiquitous. And you'll hear and probably say, put your best foot forward, which Garner calls idiomatic, another way of saying, that's just the way it is. Of course, we have only two feet, so we really should say better foot, but that sounds weird. Maybe we say best because we're speaking figuratively, as in do the best you can. We're not really talking about actual feet. But we also say made the best team win, usually when only two teams are playing. So better versus best is a bit of a conundrum. Sometimes the ungrammatical way sounds best. And see, I just caught myself again using best instead of better in that sentence. I compared two items, the grammatical way and the ungrammatical way, but I used a superlative. I guess best is sometimes the best option, even if it's not technically correct. Language changes, and in speech, it's probably fine to let a few bests slip out. But in the most formal writing, you still might want to use a comparative when it's called for. And if it sounds unnatural, try to rewrite the sentence. And finally, another error I encounter a lot is what I call an empty comparison, a comparison that doesn't explicitly state what is being compared. For instance, an advertisement that says, this hard drive is better and faster, fails to state what is worse and slower. When readers see empty comparisons, they have to guess what the writer means. In this case, I might guess that the ad is promoting a hard drive that is better and faster than a competing model, or maybe it means better and faster than the previous version of this brand of hard drive. Readers don't like being in the dark, so be sure to include the other half of your comparison when you use a comparative. That segment was written by Bonnie Mills, who's been a copy editor since 1996. And finally, I have a Familect story. Hi, Grammar Girl. My name is Mike, and I have what you might call a Datalect story, because I believe my dad is the only person who's actually ever used this word. And the word is pretty near, as in pretty near or almost. For example, he laughed so hard he pretty near fell out of his chair. And it was only as an adult that I realized when I went to write the word down that I had no idea how it would be spelled. And it's not a word I was actually going to even find in the dictionary. Love the podcast. Been listening to it for years. Hope you like my dadalect story. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Mike. I hadn't heard this word before either, but it came up recently when I was talking with Ann Fisher on her WOSU radio show called All Sides, which airs in Ohio. People were calling in about regional words, and Pritnir was one they mentioned. And after the show, I mentioned it to my husband, and he said, oh yeah, of course, Pritnir, like pretty near. Well, when I was writing the transcript for your call, I noticed that Google Docs didn't underline Pritnir, which means it recognizes that word, which also surprised me. I actually even found it in two less traditional dictionaries. 
Urban Dictionary has a 2002 entry, and it also appears in the Free Dictionary online, which calls it an idiom. In both places, it's spelled as two words, pert, P-E-R-T, and near, N-E-A-R. And from what I can gather from postings on online forums and comments, it tends to be something older people say, especially in more rural areas. I saw people say they heard it in Ontario, Kentucky, central Wisconsin, South Dakota, and among, quote, the hill folk of West Virginia, unquote. So I'm sorry to tell you that it wasn't just your dad who said it, but it was super interesting to me that it came up twice in just a couple of weeks. Thanks a bunch for the call. If you want to share the story of your family act, a word your family and only your family uses, call the voicemail line at 833214-GIRL. Call from a nice, quiet place, and we might play it on the show. Grammar Girl is a quick and dirty tips podcast. Thanks to our audio engineer, Nathan Sims, and our director of podcasts, Adam Cecil. Thanks also to our digital operations specialist, Holly Hutchings, our marketing associate, Davina Tomlin, and our ad operations specialist, Morgan Christensen, who doesn't have any pets, but when she does, she wants a puppy named Fergie after Sarah Ferguson and another named Seeger after Bob Seeger. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. That's all. Thanks for listening. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life, which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi.